I'm Yoel Embiar. Ugh. Let's redo. Yeah, right. I think I should pronounce my own name correctly. <laughs> Welcome to Two Psychologists, Four Beers. I'm Yoel Inbar. With me here, as always, is my friend and co-host, Mick Inslicht. How are you today, Mickey? You're, uh, you're talking to me? I am talking to you. Because I explicitly told you, don't at me. Is that right? I don't, I don't understand what that means. Maybe you can explain to me what it means. Well, I, I also don't understand what it means. I pulled uh, the, the Twitterverse uh, about this. You know, this is this, this notion that some people will tweet things and then the bottom they'll say don't at me and i've only seen it i think three times the first time i actually saw it, it was with you i think you you quote tweeted someone who at the bottom of their tweet said don't at me and i'm like does that mean they don't want engagement they don't want like people to retweet like i, I don't really understand what it means so i asked people and the first it seemed like there were three kinds of responses the first one was um it's ironic so why would anyone say, don't interact with me on a social interaction platform? So it seems like a clever joke. I like that one. The second one was more, um, these are people who are saying something controversial and they don't necessarily want people to attack them, to pile on them. And the third is similar to the second. And that's, uh, you know, someone has said something over and over and over again, and they're just tired of repeating themselves. So they then say it and add, don't at me at the end. I still don't really get it. I, I, don't, I don't really understand uh, the point of it. Uh, do you? Do you have any sense? No, obviously not, because I quote tweeted this person who said don't at me. And so clearly that's a violation of the rules. No, I don't get it. It doesn't make any sense. Well, you know, I hear people say it as a joke. That kind of makes sense. Yeah, the joke part, that's yeah. hilarious. I mean, I, 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 I would use that. Right. Um, but it seemed like it was almost like this is a way to make Twitter safe, like a safe space for Twitter. I'm going to say something controversial, uh, you know, at least controversial to some people, and they're expecting a pylon and don't pile on me is, is, is I guess what that means. Yeah. Unfortunately, public platform and you can't control what other people do. Yeah. And it seems like if you have something that's controversial and you don't want people to talk to you about it, then don't talk about it on Twitter. Actually, one person said they, they analogized. I thought this was maybe good, apt. It was like, it's kind of like a bumper sticker. It's like, I'm just saying this thing. I'm not expecting you to respond to my bumper sticker. I don't want you to honk at my car, um, but just something I want to say. Um, but Twitter doesn't seem to be, that's not what that medium is. Um, it's about interaction. Right. So if you want that, put it on your blog and turn off the comments. Yes, exactly. It seems like don't at me is the equivalent of all you're allowed to do is like and retweet. You cannot comment on what I say now. <laughs> right. Uh, would positive comments be accepted, do you think? I suspect they would be uh, uh, acceptable, um, but because uh, commenting would allow negative comments too, I suppose that would be kind of cool. Actually, wouldn't that be cool if you can have a tweet with a feature that didn't allow commenting? What do you think about that? Yeah, that's interesting. Um, I mean, I would like that. I think that could be useful, but I, I don't think they'll ever do it. No, I don't think so. That would be useful, right? Because then you could you, you could say things you want to say. You could have your, your your bumper sticker out there, and people could amplify or not. Um, and then you don't have to worry about the dicks and the trolls piling on. Right, right, exactly. Well, I'm sure they'll get right to work adding that for us. Jack, add it. <laughs> yeah. a golden idea here for you. <laughs> he's a, you know, he's a longtime listener. We don't like to boast about it, but it is, it is true. That's right. Um, so, Mickey, we have more listener-donated beer today, do we not? 
We do. Uh, so I'm not going to uh, uh, name the beer. That'll be your job. But I just want to say that this is beer that was donated to us by a, it's actually a German student who is studying in the Netherlands in Nijmegen, uh, who's, uh, who's named um, Jonas Dora, who's visiting my lab for the next three months. And in the first kind of meeting I had with him, he's like, I, he's like, I heard you like beer. So I brought you uh, two beer, two, you know, two for each of us. Um, so exactly four. Um, that we could drink on a podcast, and I figured it'd be a nice, uh, nice thing to drink today. Yeah, that's uh, that's very much appreciated. So thanks so much to your student. What was his name again? Jonas. Jonas. Thanks, Jonas. So first up, we are drinking. These are both, I should say, from a brewery in Nijmegen called uh, De Hemel, which I think means heaven. Um, and the first one is a Belgian style uh, amber ale, and the name of the beer is Hodelief which I just looked up, it means uh, God-fearing. God-fearing, nice. Yep. Yep. God-fearing beer. Yep. Well, Great. cheers. Uh, yeah, it's, it's very on brand for us, right? Cheers. And thanks, Jonas. So this is a, I think you previously described it as a light brown beer. Yeah, I think that was just me mistranslating the Dutch. Ah, okay. Well, because you said light brown, and, and I was thinking to myself, we have not had... And I think this is a major omission on our part. We have not had any beer of color at all. We have not had any stouts, any yeah. porters, right. no Russian imperial stouts. Right, right, right. You're just justifying your addition to that white supremacist. <laughs> <That's right. laughs> so is there a reason? Yeah. I, mean, I actually don't like, I don't like porters uh, and stouts generally. Um, but do you like them? Um, yeah, I like stouts. Um, I also like, uh, black IPA. I'm not sure you ever had, had black that IPA or like, I, I think sometimes it's called dark IPA. It's like a, well, it's exactly what it sounds like. And, uh, <laughs> <A dark IPA. laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, I don't know. Maybe it's just a, a question of like what's in right now, beer wise. I feel like stouts sort of had their day and now there are people are over them. Is that accurate? Yeah, I think that's right. I think now that the popular ones are the sours, the yeah. breads, the, the IPAs are of course. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, I don't know. I, 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 I remember visiting Berlin a number of years ago and it was, it was all stouts and porters all the time. And I liked it then. Um, but I must admit, like, some of those are a bit too malty for me. Uh, and I prefer the, 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 the bitter notes that you get from, from the, the good hops. Right. So I think the real reason is that you're mostly the one who chooses the fancy beer. And so it reflects your taste. Yes, that is true, probably. <laughs> I may like accidentally buy a stout one day. All right, I'll drink it, I promise. Uh, I'm um, happy to hear I don't that. want to be, you know, I don't want anyone to accuse us of being, uh, what, beerist, uh, colorist? Uh, 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 yeah, shadist. Shadist. Yeah. Yes. All yeah. right. Um, yeah, so we will, we'll put that on our list for the future. So, uh, Nikki, uh, today we have an episode that's somewhat by listener request, right? We had a couple people reach out and ask us to talk about this. Yeah, it's kind of funny. Uh, so a, a couple of listeners asked us specifically if we would devote an entire episode to the very fraught and controversial topic of ego depletion. And as this is my research area, something I've been studying, uh, for a number of years now, and kind of mired myself in kind of trying to figure stuff out. Um, I thought it would be, well, it'd be easy for me to do because I, I, I'm essentially going to be giving kind of a version of a talk that I sometimes give uh, with you peppering me with questions and pushing me on, 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 on various things, I hope. Uh, but I think what, what really started this was last week, uh, Roy Baumeister uh, released a preprint of a chapter of his uh, called uh, Self-Control, Ego Depletion, 
and Social Psychology's Replication Crisis. This is a, it appeared on Psych Archives, but it's, it's a chapter that is going to be appearing in an edited book by, uh, I think it's Alfred Mealy. It's A. Mealy. Um, and the, the book is called Surrounding Self-Control. And, and this is a, a chapter that Roy Baumeister wrote. And it made the rounds on Twitter. And uh, there was kind of a lot of interesting responses, mostly negative, um, because essentially Roy Baumeister was pushing back on the narrative that there's no such thing as ego depletion, that it's all been overblown. Um, and kind of along the way, uh, I think engaged in some ad hominems and uh, some bad faith arguments. Um, but you know, then there was a second kind of response, uh, which I, I think I, that was, was my, my response uh, that I think uh, you know, some people shared, was that I, I read this um, and I felt kind of bad. I felt bad for Roy, uh, for Roy Baumeister, who, who seemed to be kind of twisting in the wind a little bit, trying to you know, explain how something that he's worked on for 20 years, and now Roy Baumeister is known for many, many things, but I think, at least recently, this is what he's most known for. Um, and I just thought this is a really, really difficult kind of crisis of meaning for him. Um, difficult to reconcile in his mind how something can seem so true, yet the evidentiary basis is so thin. Okay, well, let's start at the beginning. What's ego depletion and why is it controversial? Yeah, so uh, so ego depletion, uh, so maybe I can, I'm going to start from the very, very beginning, even before that, uh, because I think the, it's worth kind of laying out, you know, this whole kind of history of it. Um and I think it starts, uh, Roy Baumeister published a book uh, with uh, Diane Tice and Todd Heatherton on self-control. And, and this was a, just library research, kind of a, a scan of the literature. Um, and at that point, self-control had not been really studied very much in, in, in psychology. It was not part of mainstream social psychology. It was kind of relegated to some extent to, to the fringes and margins. Um, but Roy and his colleagues argued that no, self-control is this ability to restrain thoughts uh, behaviors, emotions, uh, to push them away, push them back, was critical to the good life. It was critical to uh, achieving all different kinds of things. And uh, he, uh, in this book, thought that self-control um, might be based on some sort of resource. and might be a thing that is, you know, based on some sort of limited quantity, kind of like a fuel. Um, and at that point, it was just kind of these, these thoughts that he had put together. And then uh, a few years later, this was, the book was published in 94. And then a few years later, he started uh, conducting empirical research on the topic. Uh, I think that the first empirical studies came out in 1998. Um, but essentially, the, let me kind of, the, the essential idea of ego depletion, which is, you know, which is follows from what Roy Baumeister and his colleagues, the, the, prominent, the prominent colleagues are especially Kathleen Voss, who has been, I think, uh, his number two in so many studies. Um, they described uh, self-control uh, kind of having uh, as a central resource, a, a thing that's kind of powers many different things that seem different, but are actually quite similar uh, in terms of their underlying structure in, in, in the sense that they require self-control. So classic examples of, of the thing that requires self-control would be eating healthily. Uh, of course, we all, we all have many urges to eat unhealthy, whether it be ice cream. For me, it's poutine. Um, for others, other people, it could be uh, cake, uh, you, what have you. And we're all tempted by this, and it takes some amount of control and self-discipline to say no to cake, no to poutine, no to ice cream, and instead grab a salad or something healthy instead. And that is kind of a classic way you think of self-control. It's kind of denying yourself um, of something and replacing it with something else. 
um, all you know, in line with your goals. And that's just one example. There's so many examples. Exercising. Many of, many of us find is onerous, difficult, very, very effortful, and we typically don't necessarily want to do it, um, and we require self-control to do it. Um, we might, uh, you know, kind of, uh, uh, some people would argue that expressing prejudice or racism um, or uh, requires, I mean, kind of acting in an egalitarian manner. So not acting in a prejudiced manner requires self-control because we all have these stereotypes uh, that are kind of these natural associations that we form. And it takes some power, some self-control not to express them, not to have them come out and bleed into our behavior. Um, anger. Uh, emotions more generally, inappropriate emotions more generally, again, uh, are thought to require regulation. So to regulate one's emotions requires regulation, requires self-control. Um, and then, uh, but then, you know, uh, the kind of, uh, the, the studies uh, and the ideas kind of spread to go even further than these kind of canonical examples. And some people started saying things like uh, moral behavior required self-control. So to act, in, you know, uh, because we are maybe self-serving naturally, at least some people say this, um, it requires self-control not to act in a self-serving manner and instead to act in an other-serving manner. Um, so, you know, this one little construct, this idea of kind of uh, uh, the ability to um, restrain your impul natural impulses um, is thought to then affect many different kinds of behavior. So all of a sudden we have this one construct explaining all different kinds of things. And it was like, wow, that's, that's cool. That's kind of amazing. Uh, thank you, Roy, for having identified this, you know, uh, for us. And um, as a result of his work, um, the study of self-control exploded. Um, so I think a lot of people, when they think of self-control and the, the, the earliest studies of self-control, they think of Walter Michel's work on the marshmallow study, where he, which he conducted in the, um, in, the, in, in the 60s and 70s with, with kids from Stanford, tracking them for numbers of years. Um, but that work, was, which was published in the 70s, um, I would argue it only became popular after Roy Baumeister started working and, and, and publishing so prolifically on ego depletion or this resource model of self-control. Um, and if you look at publication trends, uh, just looking at the words self-control or self-regulation, you don't see it jump up in the 70s or 80s when Walter Michel was publishing this stuff. You see it jump up pretty much precisely around the time that Roy Baumeister started talking about it. So right around the, 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 you know, the, the turn of the millennium. Um, Around 2000, you see a, a spike of research on the topic. And I, and I, I suspect that's because Roy really got into it. Um, now, the other thing, and this is kind of getting at what ego depletion is, your first question. Um, uh, he not only described self-control as being a central resource, he described it as relying on um, a kind of mental fuel, okay? Such that when you use the fuel to power the will, to power you know, control at time one, you have less of it, uh, you have less of this mental fuel to control yourself at time two. So just like a car takes fuel to go from point A to point B, um, and if the car uses up all the fuel to get to point B, it will not be able to go to point C anymore. Um, and Roy analogized and suggested that the mind works similarly, that in fact, um, controlling oneself requires some sort of mental fuel, which we'll talk about what that might be in a, in a bit. Um, and this fuel eventually runs out as people use it, and then people might not have any energy left for later in the day. So, for example, if you are, you have a difficult boss who's kind of maybe, uh, 
uh, uh, leads to kind of a stressful work environment. Maybe your, your boss is kind of yelling at you, screaming at you regularly. And you know that if you respond in kind to him or her, you will likely not have your job anymore. It's incumbent on you to restrain your emotions, to control your emotions so that you keep your job, right? To keep cool uh, so that you keep your job. Now, I would argue, you know, doing this for a day or for even a few hours will then mean that when you get home, you might be more likely to lose self-control later. So, for example, you might reach for snack food instead of healthy food later on. Um, when you're dealing with your children, you might act impatiently with them as opposed to uh, patiently with them. You might snap at your spouse. Uh, you might grab, you know, a pack of cigarettes. You might plop on the couch instead of doing more work and watch Game of Thrones instead. So, again, you've got this kind of because it's so central uh, and because, you know, we all manage our uh, control, control ourselves regularly, it seems like a widely applicable uh, phenomenon. And then what happened in the, you know, in this time after he published his initial research is that people started showing how widely you could apply it. So just to be clear about what the theory says, whatever mental resource you use to exert self-control, that isn't the same generic resource that you use to do anything mentally effortful. So for example, let's say I'm at work all day, I'm working hard, but I'm in a flow state, right? So I'm not having to resist any temptation to stop working. In fact, I'm enjoying it. Now I'm exerting mental effort there still, but Roy would say, or the theory would say, that isn't the same resource that's used up if I'm inhibiting a desire to stop working, for example. Yes, that's true. So according to uh, the kind of the classic version of this resource model, what is required is some sort of inhibition, some sort of working against something. So, you know, if you're not working against something, you you know, you're not consuming this resource necessarily. Now, me and some other people have said, well, let's let's hold on a minute there. And we suggest that no, all effort is, is, is all you need to do is engage in something effortful. It doesn't necessarily need to be you know, resisted. It doesn't need to be inhibition. Anything effortful will do. But the classic theory is you're, you're absolutely right. It has to be something that is um, um, you're working against maybe some other goal. There needs to be goal conflict where you've got two responses working against one another. So again, an example would be um, you're, you're, you're trying to do work, but you'd rather be on Twitter. And if you're forcing yourself to get to do work and it's, and it's difficult because you keep on thinking about Twitter, um, that will then drain this resource. He would, he would argue that's necessary. Right, right. So another example of control-free effort might be like white knuckle driving, like let's say in a snowstorm or in a rainstorm, you have to pay a lot of attention, but you're in no way tempted to take your eyes off the road, right? So I think anybody who's done that sort of a drive can relate to the idea that you feel very drained after having done that, but that's not supposed to be the same resource that you would use in order to avoid... Um, a temptation, like in order to resolve conflicting impulses. Yeah, that's a great example. So, like anything that requires lots of attention, um, and I think that great, you know that example of white knuckle driving. Never heard that, never heard that expression before. That's a great one. Um, you're right. You're not motivated to do anything else. You're just motivated to, to stay alive. Yet that is incredibly draining. Uh, so, I mean, again, from my perspective, and and we'll talk about where I come in a little bit later. Um, I would say that, you know, you don't need to have a competing motive. Anything Everfoot will do, anything that's mentally difficult 
anything that's mentally effortful should quote unquote drain a resource. Now, I don't think there's anything drain, being drained. I don't think there's actually a resource at all. I'll talk about that in a moment. But I would suggest that, you know, um, is how, you know, Roy and I see things slightly differently. Gotcha. Okay. So, uh, sorry, I just wanted to clarify that. Um, go on, please. No, that, I mean, I, I, I ask all these kinds of questions because, you know, I think it's great. Now, let me just say uh, something about um, the, the a, a flavor for how, you know, some of the studies actually look. Um, because not only was this idea kind of like broad and it seemed so, so applicable, the studies themselves were, you know, this is pre-replication crisis, um, and they were sexy. They were cool. They were like breathtaking to some extent, right? So some of the earliest studies uh, would have, um, I think one of the first studies ever, empirical studies, um, Roy and his colleagues brought students into a lab where they were baking fresh cookies in the lab. They had a little, little toaster oven. The smell of, uh, uh, of cookies was wafting through the room. And then some participants were, were allowed to eat cookies. And some still smelt the cookies. And, and no doubt they wanted the cookies. And I believe, although I'm not positive, these students all came in being hungry. So they would have, been, they would have wanted the cookies. And they were told, sorry, buddy, you cannot eat the cookies. But you can have these radishes instead. And the idea here is that, well, everyone wants the cookies now. They're hungry. The smell is delicious. Um, but not, but and, not, and, and, and the cookies are in front of them. They, they don't, so technically they could eat it, but they're told not to, right? So they're not, they don't have to restrain their, their desires, their impulses to eat cookies. They're like, wow, what a cool manipulation. Like, I can see that. I pass by, you know, shops that have, you know, smells wafting and I'm like so tempted. That seems like something I encounter regularly. So it was, it was really kind of, you could feel that. Um, and then the dependent variables might be something like, um, how long do you persist on, on a puzzle, right? Or how long can you withstand physical pain? So it's just like these cool dependent variables, very behavioral, and it just, it, it was cool. It, it was lots of fun. Uh, so quick question. Um, what kind of a manipulation check can you do there to make sure that your induction has actually depleted people? Like, do you ask them explicitly? That's a great question. I think that the issue of manipulation checks is, is one that's become thorny. Um, but uh, yeah, you, you, I think what's typically done for depletion studies, although I'll, I'll, maybe I'll talk about this a little bit later, it's, it's amazing how rarely manipulation checks are even used. Um, but when they are used, it's, it's typically something like, how difficult did you find that experience? How much effort did you apply to resist, if, in this example, the cookies? Um, or you might ask something like, how, how tired are you? How fatigued are you? How drained are you? Um, so you, you could do something like that. Now, it's difficult to, of course, have people have to self-report on their mental state. Um, but it's difficult to know how to, how to measure that otherwise without getting at that mental state. Um, there are some other uh, independent variables, uh, inductions, that you can quantify more readily. So you can actually look to see if people are doing well or not. And typically in the depleting sort of condition, people are doing worse because it's a harder version of a task. So that'd be a more quote unquote objective way of getting at that. Um, so the other thing that the resource model uh, uh, discusses, uh, which we won't talk about much, but, but just again, to give you a flavor of how cool and sexy it was, um, is that, and there's a lot of analogies in, the, in, in this literature, is that Roy also analogized and suggested that this resource, self-control, is, is kind of like a muscle in the sense that just, like, you know, after you've worked out this muscle, um, 
anyone who's worked out knows that th their muscles are sore. They're tired and they can't lift nearly as much at the end of their workout as they could at the beginning of the workout. So that kind of characterizes this ego depletion, this kind of fee this inability to, to, uh, to control yourself further. But the added wrinkle is that just like a muscle can build itself over time, so can your self-control muscle. So if you practice self-control over time, uh, in theory at least, you could uh, build up this muscle and increase uh, your self-control strength. And in fact, uh, this idea is not so far-fetched because uh, cognitive psychologists um, who work in so-called brain training or cognitive training uh, essentially have done the same thing, which has been an abysmal failure, essentially, um, where it turns out that you know practicing won't actually increase much other than your ability to do, do the thing you've practiced on. But nonetheless, that's a feature of this, uh, of this model. So that'd be kind of the first part. And this is like over about 10 to 15 years, this was like kind of a part one of the ego depletion story, all right? And then um, I would say a part two happened, and this is kind of where I came in, um, where a bunch of us started saying, uh, well, hold on a second, um, this resource that you're talking about, um, like, what is that resource? Like, is there something actually that gets drained? Is there something, is, or is this just a metaphor? Are you talking metaphorically here or not? And at first, I think most of the scholars were, were fine with it being a metaphor. But then at some point, um, Matt Galliott and a bunch of other authors, including Roy Baumeister, said, no, 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 this is not a metaphor. This is real. What gets drained is blood glucose. Um, and and in, in a series of studies, I believe it was like nine studies in a JPSP paper. At that point, it was the highest number of studies I've ever seen in, a, in, in an article, uh, in one paper from the Journal of Personality and Social Psychology. I was blown away. Um, and they argued and supposedly showed that, in fact, after you engage in self-control exercises, you drain, uh, you, you, sorry, you show a diminishment in blood glucose, okay? Now, I don't want to spend any more time talking about this because within about a year or two after this paper came out, it started being criticized heavily. And in fact, I believe that it was the introduction of this preposterous idea is what eventually led to the downfall of depletion altogether. Because people were like, wait, hold on, you got nine studies showing this thing? When we know, like biologists who actually study, um, you know, uh, uh, glucose consumption, uh, actually how much glucose is actually consumed by mental exercises, by measuring glucose directly in the brain, um, they find that it actually consumes very, very little. So engaging in a cognitive control task um, consumes like some people estimate, Robert Kurzban in a very brilliant article suggested that, you know, working on a cognitive control task for let's say five, 10 minutes might consume the equivalent of a tic-tac of calorie, maybe one calorie or so, maybe a little bit less. So, and, and the brain, of course, has got lots, it needs lots of glucose. One, one calorie is not gonna shift it one way or another. So it, it's impossible that uh, some mental, focal mental task is leading to a, a depreciation, you know, a measurable decrease in glucose that could then affect um, your performance later on. So it has to be something else if there's an effect to begin with, okay? So that was the first kind of hole of like, what's the resource? There can't be a resource, or at least that resource can't be glucose. Um, and then the second hole is a bunch of studies started showing up, uh, showing that um, you could erase, quote unquote, erase depletion effects by incentivizing people on the second task. So, um, so the typical paradigm that's used by depletion researchers is you have people engage in a control task or not in the control condition at time one, and then you have everyone engage in a second self-control task at time two, and people typically show a depletion effect after 
um, if they engaged in a difficult task at time one. Now, if you incentivize people for that time two task, the effect goes away. And you can incentivize them by giving them money. You can incentivize them by telling them that this work is really important to us. You can incentivize them by just being nice, by being a nice experimenter, being kind and generous, uh, as opposed to being rude and blunt and, and kind of not explaining things enough. And all of a sudden, you make the depletion effect go away. Well, if something has been depleted, if something has been drained, how can um, a motivational incentive instantly replenish that drained thing? So it can't be something that's been drained, physically drained. It has to be something else. So um, myself, but other people as well, including Robert Kurzban, Angela Duckworth, um, Wouter Kuhl, uh, Matthew Bofmanek, a number of people started proposing alternatives to the resource idea, suggesting that, yeah, okay, we, we, we might show some sort of diminishment of self-control, but it has nothing to do with the resource. Really, it's just about motivation. It's not that people can't control themselves. It's that people don't want to control themselves. They just don't, they're not up to it. They don't feel like it. And if you make that, sec that second self-control task important enough, well, then all of a sudden, people will, in fact, have plenty of self-control resource to, uh, to control themselves. So that was kind of a major blow, I think, to the resource model. So, so far, it seems to me, like, zooming out a bit, we shouldn't be uncomfortable with that story, right? Like this seems like a, a reasonable pattern of somebody discovers some new empirical phenomenon, proposes some explanation for it, and then people look at that explanation, they propose their own explanations. Maybe those explanations are more uh, credible in other ways, like biologically, for example. Um, but they're still like kind of trying to explain the same phenomenon, right? And that's, I, I would think is how science progresses. We find a phenomenon and then we work out which of these explanations for it are actually the best one. So at what point do things like really start to go off the rails then? Yeah, that, that's a great question. So I mean, I, and I agree with your assessment so far. So far, this is normal science, right? So far, this is, I mean, it's normal science as social psychology gets. Um, but, uh, you know, so far, yeah, right. You know, Roy proposes an idea, lots of studies, and I mean, lots of studies, right? So by some counts, there are over 600 studies testing some, some hypothesis derived from this resource model. 600, that's huge. There are very few phenomena in social psychology over the past two decades that have received this much apparent support. Um, and then it's also normal that you know, a first iteration of a model isn't exactly correct, and then a second version, a third version, a fourth version, and then eventually, hopefully, you're, you're getting closer and closer to quote-unquote truth. So, so far, normal science. And for me, I was happy to be kind of involved and, you know, kind of arguing a bit with, with Roy. And it was kind of, for me, it was a highlight of my career to be invited to actually debate Roy. And I debated Roy a couple of times in a couple of different venues. And it was, it was, I was, you know, I never thought I'd ever be in that place. So it's kind of cool. And I, I was stoked to be actually finally, you know, playing with, you know, eminent people. Um, so it was cool for me. But then around... I guess it was 2014, 2015, things started going off the rails. And things all of a sudden weren't normal science at all anymore. Um, and at first, I really, really resisted, um, you know, the kind of, uh, the non-normal science stuff. So I'm like, this is preposterous. This, 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 you know, this, this can't be right. Um, uh, but then eventually, I, you know, I, I changed my mind quite a bit. But, you know, I wonder if uh, we should maybe take a quick break and uh, and then pick up the uh, the craziness after the break. Sounds good to me. So post break, we're going to go off the rails. 
In every dream home a heartache And every step I take Takes me further from heaven Is there a heaven? I'd like to think so Standards of living They're rising daily But home, oh sweet home It's only a saying From bell push to faucet In smart town apartment The cottage is pretty The main house a palace Penthouse perfection But what goes on? What to do there? Better pray there Welcome back. This is the part of the show where I tell you how to contact us. So one way to reach us is on Twitter at Four Beers Pod. Uh, we both check the mentions and the DMs uh, for that account. If you'd like to email us, our email address is fourbeerspod at gmail.com. Again, that email will go to both of us. Uh, our website is fourbeers.fireside.fm. You can find our back catalog there and you can drop us a line there as well if you would like. One last note, if you're enjoying the show, please do rate and review us on iTunes. It helps other people discover the show. Mickey, have I left anything out? Is there anything else we'd like to ask of our listeners? Uh, no, I think that's good. I mean, maybe we can reinforce one thing that you mentioned, I guess, a couple of episodes ago, and that is if you have found this show useful, if you've used it for any pedagogic purposes, um, if you can shoot us an email, let us know. That would be helpful. We, we appreciate uh, knowing how you use the show if you use it. Um, and uh, yeah, please, again, uh, review us, write something uh, about us. Uh, and I would love, this is what I want from, from someone, because we've got a bunch uh, of reviews that are something like, when you run out of very bad wizards, <laughs> it's good to listen to them. And they're not all Dave Pizarro and Tamara Summers who are running that, by the way. There's a number of people who do that. Um, so uh, I would like the reverse, something like, way better than very bad wizards. Uh, listen to very bad wizards after this one. Uh, it would make me happy if you would do that. So uh, please do that. Right. So uh, you guys heard it here. This is what Mickey wants. And uh, yeah, thank you to those of you who've um, taken the time to send in emails about how the podcast um, is has been useful to you. We really uh, appreciate those and please do keep them coming. Now, as far as beers, um, we're going to keep going with a different beer from the same uh, brewery, Brauerei de Hemel. And uh, this one is called uh, Hop for Dory and is actually an IPA made with uh, a single type of hops, uh, those being mosaic. Uh, so, Mickey, what do you what do you think of this beer? Oh, I, I have not tried yet. Let me see. Oh, that's great. Yeah, that's really good. Oh, yeah? Okay, well, I haven't tried it yet either. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to sample. Yeah, it's a really classic uh, American-style IPA, quite hoppy. Mm, nice. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, so thank you very much, uh, Jonas Dora, for uh, the beer donation. And keep the beer donations coming as well. We, we, we will drink your beers and... Thrill, thrill, everyone. We'll mention you by name on the podcast. So that's that's how we pay you back by giving us beer. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and such a reward it is, right? And I mean, it, I, and, uh, 
who doesn't want their name mentioned in our podcast, dude? Um, I can't think of lots of people. <laughs> Actually, I think probably we've named some people who would rather not be mentioned yeah. in our podcast. Yeah, no, plenty, <laughs> plenty. Um, so uh, shall we keep going? You were about to tell... Um, about how things actually went off the rails yes. when you go depletion. Yeah. So, you know, uh, kind of to, to recap, things were good for about uh, a decade and a half. Normal-ish science. Uh, theories proposed. Theories revised. Lots of empirical support. Um, but then something strange started happening uh, right around the time of the replication crisis. Um, so, which really, I think most people would acknowledge the start of the replication crisis being maybe 2011, 2012. Um, so right ar around then, um, I believe the, the first paper I saw on this was in 2014 by uh, Evan Carter and Mike McCullough, who conducted a meta-analysis of the ego depletion literature um, and they conducted what's called a bias-corrected meta-analysis of the ego depletion literature and found startling results. Okay, but before I say um, uh, what the results were of that and kind of unpack that a little bit, let me just say that there um, was also an original meta-analysis, the first one conducted by Martin Hager and colleagues in 2010, and it found that, in fact, ego depletion was quite healthy. Um, had a, uh, I would say, a quite large effect, especially by today's standards, uh, for, for the stats nerds out there, a D of 0.62. So, you know, rather large, I would say. Um, such that, again, controlling yourself at time one will lead to some deficit at time two. Robust effect, um, uh, according to Martin Hager. A Evan Carter, Mike McCullough come to the scene and say, hey, whoa, whoa, not so fast, Martin Hager. Um, you made a couple of errors. Um, the first error is that your meta-analysis did not include a single unpublished study. Now, why is this important? Um, this is important in meta-analyses because uh, I think a lot of us see meta-analyses as the kind of the, the, the gold criteria and the best way to arbitrate uh, arguments in a field or determine, let's say, how big or robust or reliable a finding is. Uh, but that is only partially true um, if the studies upon which the meta-analysis is based is garbage, the, the meta-analysis will produce garbage. And if you don't actually get all the studies that are run in the field, well, then what's going to happen to your meta-analysis is that it's going to be impacted by what's called publication bias. Publication bias is the phenomenon that is happens in every field, but especially in fields like, uh, like psychology, where only positive studies get published. By positive, I mean uh, studies that uh, confirm the author's hypotheses. Those studies, and there are many of them, that do not confirm the author's hypotheses typically don't get published. Now, they don't get published for lots of reasons. Uh, one reason is that the authors don't try to seek publication. Another is that typically journals do not publish null results, although that's changing a little bit. Um, and third is that there truly is a lot of ambiguity with a null result. It's not clear what a null result means. Um, and sometimes it can mean like it's just a bad study. You totally fucked up. It can mean like you had a, you had a computer program error um, and your results are simply not valid. Or it could be that you, you gave it a the good try and it just didn't work. And maybe your hypothesis is wrong. But nonetheless, you need to, when you conduct a meta-analysis, to account for the unpublished studies. Okay? Martin Hager didn't even include one unpublished study. So that's a, a huge no-no. Um, so, in a first paper, what uh, Evan Carter and Mike McCullough did is they said, well, there's a bunch of now methods out there 
to determine or to correct, to determine if there's publication bias affecting results, but also to correct for them, all right? And when, the, when they applied some of these corrections, the effect went from, again, a D of 0.6 to a large effect to a D of 0.25 or something like that, which is rather modest, rather small, or possibly the effect was zero, was non-existent at all. And when I first read that, that result, I was like, this, is, this can't be right. This is, this is crazy. How can you all of a sudden make, you know, at this point, the meta-analysis included, I think, about 200 effects. How can 200 effects that all of them, almost all of them, had positive results, how can they all of a sudden magically go to zero? Um, and I'm not going to get into the math behind these corrections, but these corrections are quite controversial. And it turns out that, and there are many, many corrections out there, that none of them are particularly good. Um, all of them are imperfect. Um, and, uh, and, and, and worst of all, these, the various meta-analysis correction tools out there do not converge. And when they don't converge, you don't know what to do. You're like, do I go with a liberal one? Or do I go with a, with a conservative one? Now, when uh, Evan Carter and Michael McCullough published this, they didn't say we should trust the most conservative one. They said, hey, some of the, some of the corrections are actually saying zero or, or much, much smaller than we previously thought. So, you know, hold your horses, everyone. And then I believe a year or two later, they published a second meta-analysis, this time including unpublished studies, many unpublished studies, and again applying these correction techniques. And the same thing happened again. Um, the, the effect was, was, you know, when it was uncorrected, the effect when you include unpublished studies was significantly smaller, but still, still robust. I think it was like a D of uh, 0.4-ish. So again, in, in the medium range, but still healthy. I think anyone today would love an effect of a D of 0.4. Um, but when you applied uh, various correction techniques, the effects either were really, really small or possibly zero. Okay. Um, and this was... I, I think startling. And in fact, it was so startling that I wrote uh, with uh, Will Gervais and Elliot Berkman, a paper that never got actually published, but lives on SSRN, this uh, social science research network, this database. Uh, and it's actually, it's quite highly cited actually for, for never being published. Um, but uh, we pushed back on these correction techniques saying, you know, none of them are perfect. And, and in fact, you know, we shouldn't trust any of them. And the best thing we should do is just like, you know, apply many, many corrections and then say, you know, the, the, that the true effect might be anywhere along this range. Okay. But what we said in that paper very clearly is what is needed is a, a good effort, high powered replication of an ego depletion effect for us to really kind of move the dial in terms of our beliefs. And that very thing happened. Now, there was a very, very large and, and quite well-known um, what's called a registered replication report. That is when a, a bunch of labs got together and decided to replicate a, a known paradigm and see what happened. But before that, I should say that, that there were starting to be after uh, Evan Carter and Mike McCullough started publishing these, these, you know, these meta-analyses, um, all of a sudden people felt more emboldened to publish their null findings with ego depletion. And, all, and as well, at the, around the same time, there were these mass journals that were cool to publish null results. So Frontiers in Psychology, PLOS One, were, uh, that was acceptable now to publish these, kind of, these null results. And you started seeing them. And there were a few out there, but there was one that was particularly good, one that I particularly liked. Um, 
that was published by uh, John Lerquin and uh, Akira Miyake and a bunch of others. I don't, uh, I don't want to name them all. Um, and they had a, they, they pre-registered an ego depletion hypothesis and it was relatively high powered and they also found a null result. So all of a sudden you're starting to see cracks in the firmament, not just from the bias corrected meta-analysis. But then what really kind of changed people's minds were not, were not these one-offs, but was this massive uh, replication attempt. So let me tell you, spend a little bit of time describing this because this has been now controversial, this, this replication attempt. Um, so this involved the replication of a computerized paradigm that was first published in psychological science by um, uh, Stripada in 2014. And the actual study itself doesn't really matter, uh, other than we should know it's, it is a replication of a study. Um, and 24 labs, I should, I should say 23 labs, uh, with about over 2,400 participants, you know, between them, um, participated in the study and tested the, just the basic idea, can we replicate a basic ego depletion effect? Now, here's where some controversy starts. Uh, the kind of party line was that these methods were approved by Roy Baumeister. Now, Roy Baumeister has um, argued against that point twice now. Um, he said that he suggested to the organizers, this is Martin Hager, who was the organizer of this Triple R, um, he suggested to him a bunch of paradigms, but um, the, they were rejected by Martin Hager and, and the collaborators because they needed something that was somewhat culture-free, something that could be done on a computer so that many labs could do this, regardless of language and culture, etc. And then finally, um, uh, they stumbled upon this one paper that used uh, computerized methods, and Baumeister was like, sure, go ahead and use this. Now, the way Roy talks about it, he says, like, he didn't really, he was very, very busy, you know, as a kind of a side note, and this is very sad. His daughter died right around this exact same period. The daughter was very, very young. Um, and he wasn't really paying attention to what was, you know, what, you know, what was going on here. Um, and he, uh, I guess, to some extent, approved the method, but maybe not with a full heart. Um, but nonetheless, that's a study that went forward. Now, I believe Roy. I, I think we should give Roy the benefit of the doubt here. He didn't approve this study. But I don't think that's a that's a get out of get out of jail card because Kathleen Voss, who was let's say the number two person in the resource model ego depletion world, she was the one who suggested it to Roy Baumeister. So she vetted it, she looked at it. All right, um, and more than that, many of the people uh, there were 24, 23 labs I mentioned. Many of the labs were experts in self control, experts in ego depletion. So I'm one of them. Um, Brandon Schmeichel's another one. There are a bunch of others. Um, they also looked at it. They also approved it. They thought this was a good test. And in fact, when uh, the labs were polled in advance, do you think this will work? Do you think this is a good test? 22 out of the 23 labs said, yes, this is going to work. No one thought it was going to be a massive effect size. People were already kind of catching wind that maybe the, the effect size was inflated. Um, but everyone except for one lab thought this would be a good test and that it would work. And uh, as you can see where I'm going, it did not work at all. Um, the uh, the meta-analytic effect size was essentially zero. There was no effect. It was not significantly different, different than zero, even though it was very highly powered to even detect small effects. But the effect was so small that it cannot be distinguishable from zero. Okay. Now, there were some labs that found significant effects, um, I believe, um, uh, including one that found a reversal of the effect. But 
you know, meta-analytically speaking, there was nothing there. Also, there were no moderators. Nothing could even moderate this effect. There's no, there's so little variance to explain. Um, now, I was, I was really upset when I discovered the results of it because I was sure this would work. I mean, again, I didn't think it was going to be a big effect size, but I thought ego depletion is a real thing. Um, and this, this changed my mind. Now, I should say that this was published in 2016, and, and we discovered the results of this, I guess, in 2015 or maybe a bit earlier. Um, while I was, I moved my priors, I changed my mind, I wasn't yet fully ready to say I do not believe in ego depletion, at least as empirically studied. I thought, um, okay, maybe that wasn't a perfect study. Maybe that wasn't a great study. It was just one study after all. And, a, 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 and even though it was highly powered and pre-registered, it's just one study. And there are so many possible operationalizations of these ideas that this is not going to kill a major phenomenon. It's, it's a major dent, but it's not going to kill it. But I now believe it's dead or nearly dead. And that's because I've done a lot more work since then trying to interrogate it to my own satisfaction. And I cannot get even depletion in my lab, even though I've devised, I think, better methods. And maybe we'll get into that in a little bit. But for me, this was this was like a time of soul searching. It was a time where I was really grappling with, I mean, I, I, I still, you know, there has to be something real here. Uh, and, and we just haven't done it well enough. Uh, and, and, and let me try and, and, and just had a really tough time. So you used to be able to get these effects, right? Um, so, you know, I mean, yes and no. Uh, so... I, my relationship with, with ego depletion has always been to some, not always, but almost always been as a critic. So I was a critic of, but not so much of the empirical finding, but a critic of the, um, of the theory behind it. But that being said, I did run a few, not many, a few uh, ego depletion studies, and I did find significant effects, but that was like, you know, pre-replication crisis days, where, you know, the, the wild and crazy days where I think, yeah, all of us, I certainly was engaging in questionable research practices. And I'm openly admitting that. And I'm not proud of it, but but I, I now see that I did these things. And I'm pretty certain that uh, the effects I found were a product of these questionable research practices. Um, so I'm not confident that I could, you know, run those exact same studies again and find these effects. So what you're saying is when you've tried to get ego depletion effects under the new paradigm of uh, pre-registering, bigger samples, no QRPs, you haven't been able to get it consistently. I have not been able to get it consistently. I'll even go further than that. I've been barely able to get it at all. Okay, so now I don't, I say barely um, because I actually have, I have a, a set of studies that uh, I have got a very positive set of reviews and probably likely to be published soon in a good place, I hope. Um, where we do find hints of something, but it's wildly different than what was originally proposed. And it's wildly different than even the typical kind of effect. It's, we use computational modeling. Uh, we're really kind of talking about a different thing. There might be something to ego depletion, um, but it has very little resemblance to what was classically discussed in the past. And also what we did find is rather small um, and you need big samples to replicate, I would bet. So... What would you say that the um, kind of state of the art is now in terms of like what people believe about ego depletion? Is it have most people who work in the area decided that it is 
either zero or a, a very small effect? Uh, are lots of people still true believers? Like, what's kind of the consensus these days? That's a really good question. Um, you know, and I don't know. I don't know what the consensus is right at this point. I know what I believe. I know what the people around me believe. I know what the Twitterverse believes, but the Twitterverse is not representative of, of you know, social psychologists in general, nor are they representative of people who study self-control. Um, my sense is that people believe in it a lot less, um, but do people believe in general that it's not real? I would think a, a significant number of people believe that. Maybe even a majority of people believe that. Um, but I suspect there are a lot of true believers that are still out there, including Roy Baumeister, right? So Roy Baumeister, in that, in that paper that kind of instigated us even talking about this for this, um, for this episode, he was adamant that um, even evolution is real. And he had lots of defenses uh, for his belief. And I think some of them are defensible. Um, so, you know, the one, one thing that he says over and over again, and I actually think it's so true. He says, uh, you know, if ego depletion is not real with 600 plus studies of apparent support, I'm not sure what I can believe in social psychology. I believe that 100%. But I've gone in the complete opposite direction of Roy there. I mean, because I don't believe in ego depletion now, or like maybe I've got a, you know, a, a, a tiny belief in it, um, I now, I'm nihilistic about the rest of the literature. Whereas I think he says like, like it has to be real, therefore, you know, I'm believing in the rest of the social psych literature. I think what he's trying to su suggest is like, there's very little out there that has as much empirical support as ego depletion. So if you're going to disbelieve that, then just throw away everything in social psychology is what he's saying. And I'm saying, yeah, <laughs> I think we should do that. <laughs> so if ego depletion doesn't exist, how do you get these 600 plus papers? Yeah, that's a really good question. So Malta Frieza um, and a number of other authors, including myself, I'm, I'm a co-author on this paper. We published a paper that was just uh, published in 2019, so this, just this year, in Personality and Social Psychology Review with a provocative title, uh, Is Ego Depletion Real? And what we wanted to do was kind of like take the conversation that, that was happening online mostly, on Facebook uh, groups and on, on Twitter, and kind of remove the emotion and just kind of like uh, distill the arguments down and, and see what what we believe at the end of it. And, and, and our goal here was to convince skeptics of the effect, but also skeptics of the skeptics. So, you know, people are the true believers. So what arguments can we muster to convince skeptics? What arguments can we muster to convince, you know, people who believe in the true effect? Um, and the arguments against it are what I've already suggested. So, you know, publication bias, this is probably a massive file drawer. Um, although in this paper, we ran some cool simulations where we suggested that the file drawer ha has to be massive, you know, in the order of like thousands, many thousands, maybe even as many as 12,000 null results or reverse depletion results for this to be completely due to publication bias. Now, if you add, you know, a questionable research practices and publication bias, maybe there need to be 4,000 studies or 2,000 studies. There's still a huge amount of unpublished studies that have to be out there. 
And maybe there aren't that many, but I have no idea of knowing. We have no idea of knowing how many, you know, unpublished null result studies are out there. It, it didn't seem likely completely that it would be all, you know, uh, in the file drawer. Then, of course, QRPs. Some people argue, including, you know, um, Rory Simonson um, and, and, and the gang, um, that uh, QRPs could lead to an alpha of 100%. Right, so that essentially anything could be QRP. You know, a zero effect could actually be P less than 0.05 if you use enough QRPs to get you there. Um, I'm not sure I completely buy that argument, um, but if that's the case, then it could be it could be completely explained by QRPs, right? Um, uh, but there are other arguments I think you, one can muster for the pro side. Um, so one argument is, uh, so a number of us have said depletion is just a, a, a form of mental fatigue. And anyone who is alive and conscious and has been tired, i.e. everyone, knows that when you're tired, things change. Um, your cognitive capacities are not the same. You're not as willing or able to do the same sorts of things. So yeah, when you're tired, you know, shit happens. And that's essentially what depletion says. So the phenomenon seems real, at least uh, on its face. Now, just because a phenomenon is real doesn't make the literature real, because the way it was operationalized in the literature can be vastly different than what we experience in the real world. So one very easy way of thinking about that is typically when we think of fatigue, we think in the order of hours. So I, after a two-hour lecture, I feel exhausted. I actually I use this term post-talk blindness. Like after I talk, like I just can't answer questions. I can't think properly. I need to, like, I need to lie down essentially. Um, it's odd because that's the moment when you get the questions, of course. Um, but, uh, and that's a real phenomenon. I think a lot of us feel this, right? Uh, but that's very different than working on an ego depletion task for five minutes. Or I saw a paper that had a, the, the, ego the ego depleting task was one minute, one minute long. And that led to a measurable outcome later on. That doesn't make any sense, right? Anyway, so um, so there is some real phenomena out there that, that maybe depletion kind of matches with. So that's one defense of, of it. Um, a second defense, and this one I find compelling. Tell me, tell me if you find it compelling. Um, and that is that um, there are very few, like two maybe, that I'm aware of, reverse depletion effects. Okay? And the reason this is a compelling argument is if this is all noise, right? If it's all just like there's no effect there whatsoever, um, and the ones that 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 make the uh, pass the significance threshold are accidents, or they're accidents pushed along by QRPs, questionable research practices. Then surely you should find some reversals by accident. You should find reversals by accident, and those would also be very publishable, right? It'd be very publishable to say, look, we have a moderator of the depletion effect, and we can make it not only go away, we can reverse it altogether. So where are they? Where are those reverse depletion effects? And there aren't any, um, or there are not, not any, but there are very few, I think a couple. Um, and I find that argument uh, sort of convincing that, you know, yeah, why, why aren't we seeing those? So what so, is your sense of that, that well, argument? All right, so let's, let's assume that there's no effect there to be found. Um, by chance, one in 20 should go in the opposite direction. So that's already not a ton. And let's say you get one of those. You're going to be like, wow, that's super weird. Let's try it again just to be safe. And then you don't get it again because it was a fluke, right? And then you're like, all right, well, I guess something weird happened. And you go on with your life. And even somebody who's like, um, I guess, more confident or optimistic, who's like, let's just take this one and submit it. 
then reviewers are justifiably going to be like, this really flies in the face of our priors. I want to see it again. And they try it again and it doesn't work. But but why are you assuming that uh, intrepid authors, you know, in this era wouldn't have used QRPs to, to push their replication, their second replication, their third replication over the significance line, just like in theory, the pro side has was maybe the theoretically doing? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, I it seems, and, and now I'm just kind of speculating, but it seems like if you are working in this area, you have an expectation that you're not going to get a reverse effect. And I think that their QRPs, I think for the most part, weren't I'll do anything to publish. It was you're convinced you were right and you were just like helping the effect emerge. So if you're already going into it with an attitude of skepticism, I think you're just less likely to p-hack. We should say, when you say QRPs, you mean questionable research practices. So basically just p-hacking, like finessing your data in order to make it look better, right? So like um, choosing the measures that look better, dropping items from composites, running a few extra people to nudge it over the p equals 0.05 line. I think you're more likely to do all those things when you're already convinced that um, your hypothesis is right. And I think most ego depletion researchers faced with a reversed result just naturally wouldn't make that assumption. Right. So they're maybe dismissing the fluke because the priors were in the other direction. Or it doesn't even require dismissing it. It just requires a more critical attitude, right? So if you're like, let me take this seriously, I'm going to try and just run the exact same study again, see what I get. Right. right. That's not dismissing necessarily, but that's like that's actually what we are supposed to be doing. Right. The critical attitude that we are supposed to be going in there with. Um, but when you are working in an area where it seems so empirically well established and you're working in that area, probably because you believe in the basic effect, even if you have maybe a different interpretation of it, um, then you're going to be differentially skeptical of confirming versus disconfirming results. Yeah, that, that makes sense to me. And this maybe relates to something that Roy wrote about in this, this article that we, that we mentioned at the top of the show, where he suggested that it was impossible for ego depletion not to be real because it would involve this, essentially this massive conspiracy, right? It would involve him, you know, finding these effects and then... Uh, you know, um, uh, 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 and, and maybe through fraudulent means. And I think Roy was elided, was too quick to elide, uh, you, know, you know, questionable research practices with fraud. I, think, I, I, I don't think they're, the, they're not the same. Um, but nonetheless, you know, so he fraudulently found something, uh, according to him, in this, you know, this kind of far-fetched notion. Um, and then a number of other people around the world, many people around the world, who he doesn't know, also, we're in on this conspiracy to then replicate and find this result. So he's saying, like, how is it possible that we all found this stuff fraudulently? How do, we, how do we all find support for this hypothesis if it's not actually true? Now, I've got lots of reasons, lots of you know, answers to that. But what, what do you think of kind of that, that argument of his? Yeah, I think it's so ironic because... We social psychologists have been in the business of telling you, hey, these profoundly counterintuitive things can be true. And I think this is one of these profoundly counterintuitive things that just statistically can be true, that under the right conditions, we can see this massive body of evidence, even when there's no effect there to be found. And that's something that's, you know, remarkable, that flies in the face of our intuitions, but I think our job there as empiricists is to say like, okay, let's like 
look at the evidence. Is it possible that my intuition here is wrong? What's my intuition based on? Is it based on math? Probably not. Probably it's based on a gut feeling that like there's so much evidence it can't possibly be wrong. And, you know, I mean, going back to Kahneman and Tversky, there is uh, a long tradition of research in JDM that says like, yeah, your intuitions can be way off under certain conditions, right? Not always, not most of the time. Most of the time they're okay. But um, sometimes the world really trips you off and you have a strong intuition that's just completely off base. Maybe this is one of those times. Yeah, I agree with that. But I want to push a little bit because I like what you were saying about uh, why there might not, why there aren't any reverse depletion effects. Um, now, my question is, why wasn't that same skepticism being used, you know, you know, for the affirmative, the, the pro-depletion effects, right? So, again, my question is, how does like an idea that let's assume it's not real, okay? Um, how does an idea that's not real end up looking real if at the hands of supposedly skeptical scientists, right? And, and, and of course, it's not a conspiracy, right? It's not like we, it, people were, were, were conspiring to, to find some fraudulent thing. Not at all. But everyone erred in the same way. So, so how does that happen? In this case, I think it's that the idea seems so reasonable. We all know that people get tired. And... It just under some circumstances, it has to be true that you get tired and you're worse at things, right? There's a reason that they only let truck drivers drive a certain amount of hours or airline crews only fly a certain amount of hours because it's been shown that after a certain point, fatigue starts degrading their performance. So that's something that we know to be true that we can all relate to from our own lives. And so it seems reasonable that these effects would hold. So I think you go in with an attitude of less skepticism. And then the more positive results you encounter, the less skeptical you are. Right. That, make, that makes sense to me. Um, so I recently uh, wrote a commentary with Malta Frieza uh, on a special issue that, uh, that's coming out shortly on ego depletion, where we ended on a pretty pessimistic note where we suggested, you know, I, the enduring lessons of ego depletion aren't about depletion. They're not about depletion at all. They're about the field more generally. And I made, I wanted to make this point because I started encountering some strange notions. And that was, so this is actually, a, a student of mine was, was uh, at the, um, what is it? The so, uh, Society, no, I forget what it is, a CISP. So this is the Summer Institute in Social and Personality Psychology. Essentially, this is you know nerd camp for social and personality psychologists. They go hang out for two weeks. It happened this past summer at, uh, in NYU. And uh, one of my students told me that he was speaking to uh, someone new and said, oh, your advisor, he was burnt badly by the replication crisis. I, I think meaning that I worked on ego depletion and to some extent on stereotype, and, and I worked a lot on stereotype threat, although that's, I think, the, it's our replicability status is much more in the air than, than ego depletion. Um, and I thought that was a kind of a strange comment because it seemed like this student, and I, and I suspect it's not just coming from this student, but from other people, they, maybe they encapsulate this. They fence it off and say, oh, this is, this is just ego depletion. This is just a problem that happened with ego depletion or with stereotype threat or with priming. But what I work on is totally fine. 
Um, you know, it's all kosher. It's all good. But it's just like, it's just really a, a few topics that are toxic. And I'm just not going to work on those topics anymore. And I think what's happening is that people have fled ego depletion. People are not studying it anymore. Um, and I think that's deserved. Um, but they're still studying maybe other things that are maybe haven't been scrutinized to the same degree as ego depletion. Frankly, I think because we don't have the stomach for it anymore. Um, but might but might be equally as bad. And again, kind of thinking of, of Roy Baumeister's words, if I can't trust ego depletion, what can I trust? So that means like there's a lot of, we should be skeptical of practically everything, including the, the stuff that you study. Um, I mean, I don't mean you, Yoel, but like all of us. Um, and I mean, is, I mean, do you get that sense as well that people are kind of encapsulating some of the problem areas and not thinking it applies to them or? Sure. Uh... I think we might look back and see these kind of specific cases as sort of a repeat of the the ESP paper, Daryl Bem's ESP paper, where people looked at that and they were like, well, if a paper that's using our kind of best practices methodologically can demonstrate something that we have such a low prior on, that implies some really bad stuff for our best practices. And I think likewise, in this case, if you look at this kind of massive literature purporting to demonstrate this phenomenon, and you conclude that there's no phenomenon there, that really says something about how we're accumulating evidence. And it should make us really skeptical of lots of phenomena that we maybe are now confident about. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. That's why, I mean, you know, I mentioned this in in, in uh, a previous episode, I think it was our Replication Crisis Gets Personal episode that, you know, this fucked me up. I mean, this truly fucked me up. Um, this is like, I, I was, you know, because I had this, you know, theoretical revision of Roy's model, I, again, I was kind of playing playing with eminent people. It was fun for me. And then, like, that, that, that only lasted for, like, a couple of years. And then, like, all of a sudden, like, the bottom fell out of this entire phenomenon. And, like, I, I don't give a shit about the eminence part, but it's more like, what the fuck? Like, I can't believe this, this has actually happened. And then I thought about stereotype threats and I thought about other things I've worked on. I'm like, I'm not sure any of the stuff I worked on is good. Um, and it just left me in this, this really uncomfortable place where I'm like, fuck man, like maybe I should be building furniture like Abe Tesser, right? Maybe I should be, you know, uh, focusing on other things. And it was really difficult. It, it took me a couple of years uh, to get over it. Uh, and I still have these kind of waves of like, what the fuck is this all about? Like, I, I'm looking forward to retirement. Um, so, I mean, I think if you're, you know, if you're not affected by this, maybe you weren't taking this stuff seriously enough to begin with. I'm not sure. I, I don't know how you can work seriously in this stuff and not be affected by uh, the bottom falling out of, of, of a discipline. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think in, I'm mostly grateful that, I'm young enough and you're young enough that we can sort of have a reset. Um, and I, I think that's kind of a blessing. But yeah, I mean, maybe the alternative would be you just decide to retire. You're like, fuck all this. I'm going to go do something completely different. I, I bet you uh, a number of my Twitter followers would enjoy that. <laughs> Nikki retired. Fuck it. Great, man. <laughs> yeah, your Twitter is just photos of the furniture you make. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Um, all right, before we're like kind of completely going uh, uh, full, full, full nihilist, um, I may want to just kind of end with uh, some specific kind of thoughts I have about depletion, kind of moving forward. Like, is there a future for ego depletion? Uh, which I'm not sure there is. Um, there might be. Um, 
but you know, for there to be a future, and and the advice I'm about to give, I think, is true for for every every area in psychology, not uh, in social psychology, not just even depletion. I think the first thing is like you know, let's let's you know, let's have way way better theories, right? So the the resource model and even my alternative, like these are like just vague verbal you know kind of statements. Um, descriptions of phenomena. They're not real theories. They don't make falsifiable claims. Like, for example, so in my model, I suggested, you know, it's not about inability. It's about like lack of motivation. But like when, when do people, you know, shift? When do people lose motivation? Um, how does that happen? Like, I, I, you know, I make no claim about when that could happen. So we have to be way more precise in our theories. That would, that would, you know, the, the, the first thing we've got to do. Um, and we start out, we also have to ask, I think, you know, maybe even just descriptive questions. Like, for example, we all believe in fatigue. Well, when does fatigue and depletion meet? Like, when do they meet each other? So how much time, how long of a task do we need? Is it minutes? Is it hours? Um, there's one study I saw that fucking blew me away, man. It was uh, done by uh, Matthias Pasiglione uh, and uh, Blaine. I forgot, it, the, the, I forget his first name. I'm sorry. Um, they had this crazy MFMRI study where they had people in the scanner for six hours examining, uh, you know, continuous performance over time and then examining uh, possible like kind of crossover depletion effects. And they found that the depletion effects emerged by hour four. Okay. Which sounds about right. Um, I mean, I've got a study where we find that uh, you actually show improvements in performance for the first 20 minutes as you kind of, uh, start getting better and start getting like a practice effect, and then uh, you start you start showing decline. You plateau, and then you start showing declines in performance around 50 minutes or an hour. Um, so I think that question of when uh, fatigue hits and for what task, I think that's those are kind of important questions. Can I can I ask an adversarial question here? Yeah, definitely. Why does it matter if this task isn't? directly linked to some real world task. So if you're like, well, in this specific lab paradigm, people get tired at minute 45. Like who cares? Why does that, why is that important? For the lab task, you mean? Yeah. Uh, maybe not so much for the lab test, other than maybe to communicate to other experimenters, other researchers, hey, you need to, you need to work on this for X and number of hours. Right, so it's a methodological point. Yes, mm -hmm. but I do think uh, for real-world tasks, that's, I think, a critical question. Right, so if you're like, hey, at what point do you get worse at flying this plane? Yeah, exactly. for sure. But it doesn't seem like that's what most of the researchers in the area are doing, right? These are kind of tasks that aren't intended to directly correspond to what people are doing in the real world. Not the typical depletion studies, but there are not many, but there are field studies now that examine this stuff. So looking, for example, at uh, a lot of work in, in, in nursing and in nurses. Um, showing that, you know, they track nurses for a full day and examine, like, at what point do, they, do their decisions change? Or, or, or actually, this is frightening, you know, like um, uh, physicians who are making decisions about, uh, about whether patients should, should go under the knife or not, should commit to surgery or not. Those decisions degrade over time. And we should know at what point, you know, surgeons should stop making those decisions. Um, so I think, you know, at, at applied level, I think it's important. And then from a methods level, it's also important, I think. Fair enough. Yeah. But I, but I think that's a really good question, nonetheless. Um, so uh, that's number one. And again, the theory articulation, theory specification, that's true for all of our theories, right? I think we're, we're really poor. Our theories are, 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 are really not very good. And we can do a lot better. Um, second point um, is like construct validity, measurements. 
like our, 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 our measures are, are not even valid. So you look at the measures that have been used, canonically used in the depletion literature, and they're cute, they're fun, they seem like they're self-controlled, at least some of them, but actually do they assess self-control? We don't know because we don't bother assessing them. And this is a point we'll probably hear about in a few episodes when Jessica Flake visits and we talk about culture validity. Um, but that's a really critical point. We, in social psychology, we've paid so little attention to measurement. Um, and we need to do a better job of, uh, at the measurement side, but also we need to do a way better job at validating our inductions, our, um, the way we induce, in this case, depletion. Um, so, for example, Roy argued that in the, um, the registered replication report, they used a task. It doesn't matter what the task is, but it, it varied a little bit from the standard version of the task. And he was saying it's because you varied the version, that's why you got the failure. Well, how do we know your original version even worked? We have no idea because it's never been validated. Um, and in fact, validation work that I've seen recently is like, yeah, that even when you follow the exact recipe, it doesn't seem to work very well at all. Um, so that's number two, you know, uh, contract validation um, of our induction, but also our dependent variables. Um, I would say, um, and this is the last point, for something like ego depletion or any, I would say any area that's controversial, I would say there needs to be a moratorium on non-pre-registered studies. Okay, so I mentioned I wrote a commentary uh, for a special issue on ego depletion that included, I believe, seven studies. Not all of them were empirical, um, but uh, the majority of them were empirical. Not a single one of those studies were pre-registered. And that just should be happening. But something as controversial as this topic, we want... We just, we want to trust it, right? It's not that, it's also not like the, the, the outsiders want to trust it. You want to trust it yourself. And like pre-registration helps you trust your own findings. Um, so we have to just stop running these non-pre-registered studies in this case. I don't think pre-registration is needed for everything. And sometimes I think it's, it's not even advisable. Uh, but in something like this, I think it's mandatory. And in fact, I would say, I don't think in the future, and pre uh, ego depletion studies should be published that are not pre-registered at all end of, you know, full stop. Um, so, and that'd be it. I mean, I, I, in terms of, you know, what the future holds. Um, and and I, I don't know if there's going to be a future. I, I, I think at this point, um, I mean, you know, social psychology is kind of faddish anyways. You know, we, our topics kind of wax and wane in popularity, uh, and having nothing to do with replicability. They just kind of become less popular over time. And I suspect this was pushed to be less popular. And I doubt people will study it in the future. And I think it'll kind of, die, um, people will start studying something called fatigue uh, again. I mean, th th there's always been a study of fatigue, but, but this will be kind of maybe more interesting just call it fatigue and use better methods. Uh, but I think the study of depletion, I, I, I can't see it continuing for much longer. Wow. Well, that's a, a cheerful take. And <laughs> <laughs> I, I think a, a good place to leave it. Uh, so Mickey, thanks so much for sharing. It was really it getting a view of this from the inside is so fascinating. Yeah, thanks. I mean, I, I know it's kind of monologuing a bit, um, but it was my popular request, goddammit. It, and it gave me an opportunity to drink more. So that's a win. And uh, yeah, no, I, I, I think hearing these stories from the inside, like from somebody who was actually working in the area as all these things went down, super interesting. Yeah, well, good. I'm, I, hope, uh, I hope it's more than just you that it's interested. <laughs>